0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Let's see if the volume's okay. How's the volume? Is it okay. Okay. So it's great to be here. Uh, Gil has also been an important teacher for my practice, and I've been here many times over the years. And participated in the year-long sutta study program with Gil here. Tonight, uh, I'm going to speak about equanimity. Equanimity is a quality of the heart, a calm, peaceful, balanced, and acceptance of the heart of things just as they are. I'd like to begin with a quote from my favorite poem, my favorite dharmic poem that in many ways I think captures the whole of the Dharma. It's from the faith, the Verses of the Faith Mind by Seng Sun, the third Zen patriarch. So it begins, the great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. When neither love nor hate arise, all is clear and undisguised. Separate from it by the smallest amount and you are as far from it as heaven is from earth. If you wish to know the truth, and hold to no opinions. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And I'll offer another quote. Sometimes I offer quotes from the Dalai Lama. This is from an American Dalai, our unique Dalai, mm-hmm. Dalai Parton. Um, sometimes a great sage who said, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Or put another way, if you want great happiness, you've got to accept that there is suffering and accept things exactly as they are. The present moment can't be any different it is so equanimity is a calm peaceful acceptance of the heart sometimes also described as a neutrality but it is a very much a heart quality it's very much uh, an evenness of attention an evenness that can accept everything in in any condition Bhikkhu Bodhi has a lovely description he says that Equanimity is like being there in the middleness, there in the middleness of it all, undisturbed by it all. I think it's uh, expressed so beautifully in so many statues of the Buddha. In almost every statue the Buddha is portrayed, I think, with a face of equanimity. It's a face of happiness, but it's a face of peace and of, of acceptance. And think of the Buddha as someone who could see and hold the suffering of the entire world, could hold the suffering of the entire world, and yet hold on to nothing. Entirely free, entirely liberated, not needing anything, not needing to hold on to anything, but able to take it all into his heart. And so many Buddha statues have a tear from the corner of the eye, from the outside corner of the eye, that I think it was a tear of peace, a tear of equanimity, holding all of the suffering while holding on to nothing. As we were sitting, I had uh, an intention of equanimity, of giving this talk from a place of equanimity. And hearing the train go by, I had a very sweet feeling in the heart, of a memory in the heart of hearing trains as a child. I live in um, San Francisco now, in the Castro, and there's no trains nearby, so I don't often hear trains. Uh, but when I grew up, I was, our house was about 75 feet away from the main Frisco rail line coming out of St. Louis. And I was on top of a, at the top of a hill about a 10-mile mile long grade, so the train was really churning, very loud and very long especially the train's going uphill. And connected with this real beauty, this real sense of uh, something beautiful in the heart in hearing the train, sat with that and then heard the train a second time go by and connected with being with my family, with my mother, my brother and sister, and touching equanimity at that time because we might be at the dinner table are in the living room talking, playing, watching TV. But when the train went by, it all stopped. It was very loud, but it was like perfect silence because we couldn't speak. There was no, no use in speaking. There was no use in turning up the television. We were all just together in silence, just like we were in the sitting. And there was no getting upset with the noise of the train. There's no wanting it to be different. It's just the way it was, just the way it is. So really, that that's the quality of equanimity, just the acceptance of things as they are, setting aside the, that sense of liking and disliking. A really um, great insight, I think, or a little little great insight to connect with that, that sweet moment uh, that occurred many times growing up with my family and that period of perfect silence amidst all that clatter. So the understanding of karma is very important in supporting equanimity practice and in cultivating equanimity. And that's what I'd like to encourage tonight is to support your development of, cult, of cultivating equanimity. In speaking about uh, karma, and karma can be defined as present action or the present moment. That's really all it is. There's so many misconceptions about karma. The Buddha said, I am the owner of my actions. So that's karma. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions, and have actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that I will fall heir. So every action has a fruit. Over my years of practice, I just feel this more and more, that there's such a level of integrity that's required around our actions. And every action has a fruit. It may be immediate. If um, we go home tonight and we're with, or we see a friend afterwards and we're with a partner or a friend, and we are angry about something and we lash out in anger, there's going to be a karmic result. It may be immediate. Our friend or partner may lash right back at us. There's a karmic result of our having speaking out in anger. But it might not be for another week that we feel it. Maybe a week later, our friend or partner has been holding that all and comes back and wants to speak about it. It's so a karmic result Maybe a week later. It may be years and decades later. It still comes up for me. I may recall something, I don't remember what it was, but earlier this week, I recalled some painful memory from, I think, what, 38 years ago. That's how long it was. 38 years ago, feeling the remorse of having been unwise in something that I said. Stick it sticks with us. And the Buddha said that karma can play itself out over lifetimes. And with karma, we too, we see that before every action, there's an intention. It's always a present intention. So we become more and more skillful in our intentions. And I think it's a natural thing to happen with our practice, and the Buddha taught the importance of developing this, of Developing a mind of non-harming, a mind of goodwill, a mind of loving-kindness. It's a natural outcome of being present, of connecting with the earth in our practice, of connecting with our hearts in our practice, of our deepest intention for offering loving-kindness, non-harming, for being at peace in the world. But because karma does play out over a long period of time, we have to acknowledge as well, we're not entirely in control. I wasn't in control of that moment of remorse that I felt for something that I did 38 years ago. It just arose in intention because of the karma. I still had an intention, I think, at the time of of non-harming that came into awareness. I couldn't stop it from coming into awareness. That's what's happened. So with karma, we have to have some letting go. I love those words, letting go, it just always feels so easeful, letting go. We have to let go around self, let go around the idea that we can be fully in control of what's happening and ultimately let go entirely. That's what our practice really calls for us to do, to, to let go entirely. And we have to recognize that we're all owners of our own karma, that we can try and help friends in need. We can work with great dedication on environmental issues. But in the present moment, we have to accept things the way they are. We have to accept that we are all owners of our own karma. So we all own our own path to freedom and liberation. No one can do it for us. It's, it's our own practice. It's our own intention to be in the world of peace, to be in the world within an attitude of non-harming. So the serenity prayer that carries across religions is so beautiful, I think. Such a beautiful statement on equanimity. May I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So this is really the balance of equanimity grounded in some level of wisdom, I think. And it's a wisdom that's inside of all of us to be found and and realized directly. And equanimity ultimately very much supports the development of wisdom. In many ways we, in our practice as we let go, as we let go more and more deeply, we let go of needing things to be a particular way, needing to hang on to what's pleasant, needing to push away what's unpleasant. So we let go to all of that. in sitting in our daily lives, we let go most of all to equanimity that complete acceptance of the heart. And that is where the Dharma begins to reveal itself. This was a point of confusion for so long in my practice. I'd hear that the Dharma would reveal itself, but I wouldn't quite believe it. I kept thinking I can make it happen a little bit and just think this through and make something happen. But it doesn't go on up here. It doesn't go on in the thinking mind. We just let go so the Dharma can reveal itself to us. We put ourselves into the Dharma. So, I'd like to share some stories from my practice in hospice care. Um, so many, many doorways to the Dharma, and this has been a particular thousands of doorways, this has been a particular doorway for me um, for many years, even before the time I started Buddhist practice. I've been a volunteer for some years at Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco, and and then in the 90s with the Shanti Project that served uh, people dying of AIDS in the 90s, and and so many of uh, my friends and I'm sure many of you knew people who died of AIDS in the 90s, and the model for that practice is a volunteer for both those organizations is very much like the instruction for us in meditation. To sit, to listen, to breathe. When I'm with people who are dying or with the family members, most of all, I'm offering presents as all the other volunteers are. Nothing special about me at all, it's just presence and it's um, It's a gift for the residents in hospice care and family members when there's so many strong feelings coming up, when it can be so difficult for people to accept things just as they are, when they're losing bodily functions, losing their home, losing loved ones. But I think, I've come to think of the Zen Hospice Center as um, I use the word sync, but I've I come to feel, I've come to feel Zen Hospice Center is a place of love and acceptance. Most of all, a place of love and acceptance. Residents often come in going through the phases around death of denial and anger. There's an unfolding process. And ultimately for some, it opens to deep acceptance. The deep equanimity, and really magical things happen. The heart is released, and it's like people are able to see their own hearts sometimes for the first time so clearly and see the beauty of their own hearts. And the forgiveness that can happen, reconciliation, and the clarity that the wisdom that arises is absolutely amazing. And um, Many of the residents, I feel, have been my most important teachers. And it's inspired my practice because I see that the letting go that opens the deepest truths, acceptance of things just as they are, that this isn't something that's just available for the dying, that this is available immediately. So it inspires my practice to let go right now and realize the truth right now. Sometimes residents seem to move entirely beyond pleasure and pain or good and bad or right and wrong. All of those kind of judgments, all of those differentiations just drop away. Think of um, one night I was with a uh, resident, Linda, who'd been there for six or eight weeks, and she'd had the opportunity to really go through those phases and come to the place of equanimity and acceptance, and really an amazing... Person and uh, privilege to see your heart. I was with her uh, I don't usually work Friday night, but I was volunteering on a Friday night after a full day's work, too. Um, but she was starting to go. She was in her last few hours. she was conscious. Uh, she had sharp sensations uh, every 30 seconds she saw from her abdomen where cancer was present. And I say sensations because I, I don't know that it was painful. She was asked by the nurses numerous times, do you want pain killer, do you want pain relief? No, she didn't want it. Well, my sense was she'd moved beyond pleasure and pain. She was just present. I don't, I don't know for sure. And I sat, with her, and um, I started by sitting, listening, and breathing. And at some point, as it sometimes does, uh, sense of separation dropped away. There's no Linda and John, it was just the heart presence in the room. And when we let go this much, when we're so much in balance, so much in equanimity, that we can accept everything, that the words and the actions seem to just come out of the heart, just come from the heart. Sometimes the words just don't even know where they're coming from. There's no, oh, these words are emerging. They're, I started to um, rub her belly gently. And just a natural response. I can't say it was right or wrong, it's just a response. But it was from the heart, so it feels like it must be right. And she held my hand, and every, you know, every 30 seconds or so, sensations, she'd hold her breath tight and start breathing with her. And I'd breathe out slowly, and she'd breathe out slowly, and the sensation would dissipate. So right there in that strong sensation, perhaps pain, right there was great peace. Right there in the midst of that was a radiant heart. Linda was really radiant in that presence. What it tells me is that when all of the smaller discomforts, dislikes in my life kind of pale by comparison to that, and if um, Linda could let go and be at great peace at that time, then it's available to us right now. That very same night it was a very a remarkable night, and but very ordinary, because in ultimately death is ordinary. It's both extraordinary, the ending of human life, it's, it's sacred. There's something, there can be something very beautiful about the letting go, certainly. I, um, the resident in the next room, uh, died and I had to leave, uh, Linda's bedside to be with the family there. And, um, two nephews and a niece of the woman who died, a, a lovely woman, beautiful heart too. And I led a ritual, ritual bathing at the bedside. The symbolic ceremony and gave the family members the chance to talk. And they were a much older aunt, probably in her 90s, and um, they, were, they were all in a place of peace with it. And sometimes when they're in people are in that place of great peace, even with something as as important as this in a lifetime, there's some opening to the truth that occurs, like a door opening. And one of the nephews um, pulled me aside and said, I would like to talk to you. I we went into a room, closed the door, and he was ready. Uh, he said, sat quietly for a moment. He said, tell me the essence of the Buddha's teachings. Remarkable thing, you know. right there, his aunt had died. He was open. It was, and it felt like a kind of a holy moment because it's, you hear stories of the Buddha in his time that people would be ripe and ready and he'd know exactly the right words to say. I didn't know exactly the right words to say. Uh, but it was a remarkable thing to see and witness the, his openness and to feel, to feel it in my heart, his openness to, to the desire to know the truth and his openness to, to hearing it, to being present for it. So we all couldn't, I don't think any of us could survive in the world without equanimity. It's, life is hard, there's suffering in this lifetime. We all experience the death of loved ones. We all experience financial losses. We all experience sickness and we experience the, the joys and the highs of life too. Uh, But we couldn't survive all of that if we didn't have some sense of balance, some sense of equanimity to accept that, to accept all the vicissitudes of life and keep going on. And so it is worth cultivating. It's worth cultivating to strengthen the equanimity to open ourselves to the truth and ultimately to realize that the greatest happiness doesn't come from the material world, where nothing, absolutely nothing can be hung on to, is permanent. It's through the complete letting go to the freedom, to the third noble truth, that freedom is possible, or freedom is to be found. And we can see, as we let go and see open to wisdom that the The cause of suffering is uh, holding on, is uh, the likes and the dislikes, is the distinctions we make between the likes and the dislikes as referred to by the Third Zen Patriarch, and the hanging on to the things we find pleasant. And the misconception that anything is permanent in this world at all, that there's anything to be found that's permanent that we can hold on to for lasting happiness. And it's through that letting go that we can realize freedom and realize that the freedom is, is here right now, that the peace, peace, is often said peace is possible in any moment, but really peace is here right now. Peace is here. It's only due to our confusion that we don't see that, the confusion that um, we need to hang on to the things we like or push away the things we don't like, that we don't realize that peace is here right now. When we open to this, we know the present moment can't be any different than it is. My teacher, Sylvia Borstein, in many talks refers to sometimes saying when people ask her how she is, she says, I couldn't be better. (laughs) A lot of wisdom there, I couldn't be better. It doesn't, doesn't matter whether she has a stomachache. <laughs> she couldn't, it can't be better. Sometimes I say that. Sometimes I get on an elevator and I'll see someone I know and they'll say, how are you today? It's just a, an expression. I'll say, I couldn't be better. And they probably are thinking, he's having a really great day. <laughs> but it's just a simple statement of the truth. And in saying that, it actually... It always settles in my body in some way, like, it connects me back with the truth. Oh yeah, this is true. It couldn't be any different. It connects me with the Dharma. (laughs) So you might might play with that. Try that out tomorrow. (laughs) So equanimity does also allow us to acknowledge that we may want things to be different. So we may not have perfect health, but we we can still accept it, but we can also acknowledge that we want it to be different. I started getting a lot of back problems, severe back problems last uh, February. I went on a retreat in February and I couldn't sit down for the entire month. Um, so that's certainly not my preference, but here I am, I'm sitting now. And uh, but I recognize that the, any aversion to it was unwise, it just made it worse. I do all the things to strengthen my back, to go to the um, physical therapist, do my exercises, and it all helps. Um, But ultimately, I can accept it and not be in contention. I don't have to be in contention with the discomfort I sometimes feel. And this is a great quality of equanimity, that uh, not being in contention, our, our hearts not being in contention with the present moment. Isn't that beautiful to think our hearts can be not in contention? The possibility that our hearts are never in contention with the present moment—that's a real expression of freedom. Um, another example I thought of on uh, not, not on accepting that we may want things to be different is being with friends or family members who have drug or alcohol problems. That we we may need to speak up, and may be the wise thing to speak up. But ultimately, we know that they're the owners of their karma, that there's only so much we can do. We have to let go around that. Um, So we may continue to want it to be different, but we can let go. We don't have to be in contention with the way things are. So The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Indifference uh, doesn't have any heart quality. Equanimity is very much a heart quality Equanimity is a Brahma Vihara. I'm sure many of you have heard of uh, Brahma-viharas the Brahma Viharas that um referred to before. Brahma Viharas are divine abodes of loving kindness, of compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Very much hurt qualities. And when any one of these qualities is present, the others can arise like that in a second. This has been my own experience too, especially on retreat practice where equanimity is strong. So I think of someone like the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who I think must often rest in equanimity. But perhaps in a crowd of people, he looks to the side and sees a baby, feels great joy. Turns back, hears a story of suffering, feels compassion. General sense of loving-kindness with all the people practicing around him, and then the sense of equanimity. So shifting from second to second, all of those arising so easily and so freely. And the uh, far enemy of equanimity is exuberance or denial or active resistance to the present moment as it is. It's kind of a confusion that there's a self in control of the present moment. When I experience really deep equanimity on, on retreats, there's a deep equanimity that can be experienced. It's exp- experienced as a coolness, like a buzzing quality. And it's a funny measurement I use is that uh, I'm on retreat practice at Spirit Rock. and I'm doing my walking practice. There's a, lots of bugs up there, lots of bees and wasps. Deep equanimity, they can all land on my face, even a wasp. It doesn't disturb the peace. There's no instinct to move. There's no instinct to shake it away. It's just there, and I haven't gotten bitten by a bee or a wasp yet. In that in that place of equanimity, so I'm in that place of brushing it away that I might get stung. And I experience it's an experience very much of the heart because it's um, the heart is so open. The tears can come so easily. The tears of joy or compassion. And there's such a sense of loving-kindness, of connectedness, to everybody else on the retreat. And sometimes even the equanimity tear from the outside corner of the eye begins to fall. And, uh I remember one retreat I was on for a six-week retreat and it seemed like I was in deep equanimity and the tears kept coming. And when I came back from the retreat, I had to go to the eye doctor because <laughs> eye ducts were kind of damaged. So just highlight seven, uh, seven steps to develop equanimity in our lives. I give credit to Gil because some of, the, some of these came from Gil from a talk I'd heard some years ago. I found the notes but couldn't find the talk again to listen to once again. But integrity in our intentions and actions, uh, providing a sense of stability so that we're not rattled by um, regret or remorse. Faith in the natural order of things, faith in our own ability to realize freedom, to realize the freedom that's our birthright. Taking care of ourselves, taking care of our bodies, taking care of our minds, really taking care to enjoy life. Wisdom, opening to wisdom, opening to the truths, particularly opening to knowing that the Knowing the impermanence that anything that has a nature to arise, has a nature to pass. So the Buddha, what the Buddha expressed so beautifully, anything that has a nature to arise has a nature to pass. The understanding of karma, that we are all heirs of our own actions. Letting go. I underlined this one three times. Letting go, letting go, letting go. Most of all, I think this supports the development of equanimity. This supports the whole of our practice. To be present, to practice mindfulness, to be aware, alert, but to let go of any judgment, and to let go of any contention with the present moment. There's no right or wrong in our sitting meditation. Anything that's known, is just to be known. And when we let go of the judging mind, that's when we can really see the truth, and the truth reveals itself. We can use the equanimity phrases. um, So it's longer, shorter, shorter phrases, given um, we're beginning to run out of time, i will just offer my short phrase that I love to use, which is, I use this silently in sitting practice, like the metta, loving kindness phrases, just repeated. Slowly again and again, with the attention on the heart, being in the body, may I accept things exactly as they are, even if I may wish them to be different may I accept things exactly as they are, even if I may wish them to be different so that 's the intention of accepting things fully, but acknowledging that we may want them to be different so it, these phrases allow that all to be held, to be held and let go of. So equanimity can become a very ground for life. The deepest level of equanimity can feel like a granite mountain. It's like absolute unshakability that no matter what arises, the fundamental peace cannot be disturbed. That's really, the. the deep equanimity. And we recognize with equanimity that our happiness is not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on our health, our money, our relationships, having things, having a pleasant mind state, none of those things. Just as I've learned from my experience in hospice care, experiencing great joy great happiness in the presence of someone who's dying and feeling like it's just presence, not mine, not theirs. It's just from the presence. I almost want to word, use the word magical, but it's its just presence. Magical presence. So what I want to close again from the verses on the face mind. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, there is no objection to anything in the world. And when there is no objection to anything, things cease to be in the old way. When no discriminating attachment arises, the old mind ceases to exist. Let go of things as separate existences and mind too vanishes. Likewise, when the thinking subject vanishes, so too do the objects created by mind. And from the very ending of the, this poem, this beautiful poem, Verses on the Face Mind, you can find it online. <coughs> I carry a printed copy with me all, at all times when I travel. Um, I like the feeling of the little book of poem. But it ends, appropriate ending after all these words. It ends, words, words, the way is beyond language. For in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. Thank you for your presence. And I'd like to just ask everyone to close their eyes for just a moment as we offer the merits of our practice If you wish to know the truth, hold to no opinions, for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. Oh, may our practice in this room together, our practice in the world, our very presence in the world, May it be for the benefit of all beings, for all beings to realize the end of suffering. May all beings be free from suffering.